Today on the Matt Wall Show, my expose on Vanderbilt's gender clinic, which butchers and drugs kids, and that's not even the worst of it, has sparked a massive reaction on both the right and the left. Best of all, there's now a push for legislation to finally put a stop to this. I'll give you the latest on this story today. Also, the White House walks back Biden's claim that the, that the pandemic is over. They say, not so. Doctors will now start conducting regular screenings for anxiety. Why is that a bad thing? Well, I'll explain. A therapist brags on TikTok about how he indoctrinates and manipulates kids. And in our daily cancellation, a philosopher comes to the defense of that teacher in Canada with the giant fake breasts. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. Inside every progressive is a totalitarian screaming to get out. And the team at Front Page Magazine has been unmasking these totalitarians since the earliest days of the internet. Founded by David Horowitz, a former red diaper baby and new leftist who ultimately became an enemy of the left and a best-selling author, Front Page Magazine has spent over two decades combating the, the radical left's efforts to destroy America. Their two new podcasts, The Right Take with Mark Tapson and The Jason Hill Show, offer riveting interviews and insightful coverage of politics, culture, and current events. The Right Take with Mark Tapson offers a fascinating in-depth cultural commentary as well as interviews with well-known conservative thinkers. The Jason Hell Show offers thoughtful, deep dives about the ideologies of the radical left and interviews who, uh, with renowned intellectuals like Peter Wood and Bruce Gilley. It takes a village to combat the radical left's efforts to destroy America. That's why, as a fan of my show, you should also check out these guys over at Front Page Magazine by visiting frontpagemag.com. And while you're there, support their cause by making a tax-deductible donation. Inside Every Progressive is a totalitarian screaming to get out, and no one understands that better than the team at Front Page Magazine. So go to frontpagemag.com today. We moved to Nashville about two years ago and uh, have grown to love the city and the community here. But when I found out that my local hospital, Vanderbilt, drugs and mutilates kids, uh, I knew that that's not something we could tolerate. I don't really want to share this city with groomers and butchers. The town isn't big enough for both of us, you might say. So we decided to uh, investigate the hospital. And I admit that I'm no journalist, but if the actual journalists aren't going to do their job, then it falls to me and to others on the right, like Libs of TikTok and Chris Ruffo and others who have been working to expose the horrors of gender ideology. Um, and as we dug into this, a story began to reveal itself yesterday on the show I sort of told you that story, took you, took you through it chronologically. It started in 2018 with the unveiling of Vanderbilt's new transgender clinic, and they were motivated to get into the gender transition game in large part because of all the money there is to be made from it, which in and of itself is maybe not a revelation that they like making money from this, but it was still interesting to hear the video that we played of a doctor boasting about the profitability of transition surgeries, quote-unquote. She excitedly declared that bottom surgery for women, which is the construction of an artificial penis using skin peeled off of the arm or elsewhere on the body, is such a big, quote, moneymaker that some clinics can thrive financially just by performing those surgeries alone. Now, why are they such a cash cow, though? Well, because, as she says, they're, they're labor-intensive and also because they require lots of follow-up. So, yes, if you, if you get one of these surgeries— you will be doomed to a life of continued hospital visits as doctors work to keep your fake sex organs nominally functional. Uh, it'll be miserable for you. I mean, you have signed on to be a patient forever. But it's great for the doctors of Vanderbilt. I mean, they love it. Next, we revealed the intimidation tactics the hospital has used to keep their staff in line. 
Because, of course, you know, they decided that they were going to start doing this and not everybody's on board with it. Not everybody wants to butcher people and chop their, be, be, a, be a party to this, chopping their, um, their you know, uh, bodies apart and cr- creating new sex organs and all the rest of it. And Vanderbilt knew that not everybody was on board. So according to one video we played, staff were warned that if they conscientiously object or if they exercise their religious liberty, their First Amendment rights, and decline to participate in these procedures, quote, there will be consequences. And if that didn't get the message, Vanderbilt also enlisted an army of trans activists to actually attend appointments with trans patients to include children and conduct essentially surveillance of the doctors, making sure that they're all affirming of the trans identity. And then, of course, there's the pediatric gender clinic, which grew out of the, uh, the, the overall transgender clinic. And as I proved with video documentation, as much as we hear denials about this sort of thing, now, uh, the fact is that Vanderbilt gives chemical castration drugs to young children. They prescribe cross-sex hormones to 13-year-olds, which are irreversible. They perform double mastectomies, which are also obviously irreversible on 16-year-olds. And they do all of this by their own omission, because there's a lot of money to be made from it. Now, after I released our expose here on the show and, and on Twitter yesterday, it caught fire, fortunately. My Twitter thread with all these videos has been retweeted over 30,000 times in a day and counting state legislators here in Tennessee have responded, promising that they will work to ban these practices in the state. Um, Our governor, Bill Lee, issued a statement saying in part that Tennessee, quote, should not allow permanent life-altering decisions that hurt children or policies that suppress religious liberties. He called for an investigation into Vanderbilt. There's been a response on the federal level too. Senator Marsha Blackburn echoed the call for an investigation. The majority leader in Tennessee, in the uh, Tennessee House of Representatives, William Lambert, tweeted, quote, I'm deeply troubled by what Matt Walsh uncovered about the pediatric transgender clinic at VUMC. Governor Bill Lee is right to call for an investigation, and we will support that investigation 100%. This type of child mutilation should be illegal and soon will be in Tennessee. I can also tell you that I've uh, had people within Vanderbilt contact me encouraging me to continue exposing the institution they work for and offering their help from the inside. Uh, I've been in touch with many activists and others here locally and across the country wanting to join in the effort to shut down Vanderbilt's child butchery business. Now, all of this, of course, has provoked the expected reaction from the left. They aren't going to engage in any sort of discussion. They aren't going to attempt to defend Vanderbilt's practices or explain why it's actually good to chop an adolescent girl's breasts off. They're going to do that. They're going to justify Vanderbilt's intimidation tactics against their own healthcare providers. They aren't going to do any of that because they can't. Instead, they'll simply try to have me silenced. And if they can arrange it, arrested too. So just reading through a sampling of tweets from some uh, verified accounts, and this again is just a a small sampling of what's out there, but trans activist Alejandra Caraballo Uh, posted, quote, Vanderbilt Medical Center has had to shift medical appointments for its trans clinic to virtual telehealth appointments as a result of threats being made. Matt Walsh is inciting a terror campaign against a hospital and disrupting care. He will get people hurt or killed. This, of course, is the common theme. You're going to get people killed. You're killing people by factually reporting on what this hospital is doing. Noah Berlatsky, who's a bizarre freak who's written for that creepy pro-pedophile organization, Prostasia, um, he tweeted, 
uh, crying out to Twitter to shut me down, saying, Twitter support, how on earth is Matt Walsh not violating terms of service? You are complicit in terrorism, and you're going to be complicit in murder if you don't take action. This sentiment was echoed by Leah Torres, who's an abortionist, who, by the way, um, if you maybe recognize the name from a while ago, she was the abortionist who once bragged about cutting the baby's vocal cords during an abortion so she can't hear them scream. That's what she said. So she's, she responded saying, Matt Walsh is off the rails and he is behaving dangerously. I reviewed his posts just from today and he's going to get people hurt and or killed. I reported the post, but that hardly feels like enough. Now, of course, coming from her, accusing me of getting people killed, I can't even tell if she means that as a compliment. She then tagged the FBI, of course, because she wants to get the FBI involved. And so did a leftist creep named Zach Hunt, who says, hey, FBI and Justice Department and MNPD Nashville, Matt Walsh is targeting Vanderbilt Hospital the same way he targeted Boston Children's Hospital. Please intervene before one of his followers starts calling in bomb threats or worse. This is the strategy they've, of course, long since settled on. And it tells you everything you need to know. Because if there was any possible defense of these practices, the left would make that argument. They tell us what the defense is. If there was anything they could say to rationalize it, they would say it. But there's nothing. There's no defense. Vanderbilt, like so many other hospitals and medical clinics, is enriching itself by permanently damaging the bodies and minds of children. It cannot be defended. So instead, they cry incitement and hope that the FBI comes and takes me away. What that means is that that these people, at some level, they know that we're right. They know it. All the people responding, FBI, come. They all, at some level, know that they're the bad guys here, which makes them even even bigger bad guys. Makes Makes you even more evil when you're aware of how evil you are. They know that this is horrific and inexcusable, and they must recognize that fact, or else they wouldn't be so desperate to shut down any conversation about it. If they believe that Vanderbilt was entirely in the right, they would say, yeah, Vanderbilt is doing all of that, and it's good. Thank you for the free advertisements. You know, it, as, a, as a comparison, the left likes to um, talk about the, the, the evils perpetrated by pregnancy centers. And, 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 of course, they say all these things about pregnancy centers. And then pregnancy centers are actually physically attacked. Uh, and there's arson and, and, and everything else. But that's not incitement. But here's, here's the interesting thing. If, uh, if somebody on the left were to post a long thread going through, picking out any pregnancy center and saying, look at what this pregnancy center does. And then they post an accurate description of all the resources and all of the you know, practices of this pregnancy center, as a supporter of pregnancy centers, I would say, great. Yeah, that's exactly what pregnancy centers do. Thank you for letting people know. Please post more like this. As an advocate and a supporter of pregnancy centers, I am proud of that. If you want to talk about pregnancy centers, we can definitely talk about it. I'm not going to try to shut you down from talking about it. See, that's what you do if you believe you're in the right. If you believe you're in the wrong, then you, you know, literally call the police and try to have me thrown in a jail cell 
just for factually reporting about what this institution is doing and who they're doing it to. Now, as for Vanderbilt's response, uh, they have so far issued no statement, except they did, in effect, issue a statement when they took down their website for their transgender clinic. Now, when I say they took down the website, I mean the whole site. They deleted the entire site, getting rid of all the evidence. Now, fortunately for them, we anticipated that, and we spent uh, the previous week archiving, saving videos, and taking screenshots, so we have it all. It, it's too late to get rid of it, guys. We have it. I mean, what I posted yesterday, talked about on the show, that's only a small fraction of what we have. We have the rest of it. But up until now, I mean, how, how do we get a, a hold of this stuff? Because up until now, they were posting everything online with reckless abandon. We didn't dig through their trash or secretly film them to get this footage. They filmed it and posted it. The footage of their doctor threatening reprisals for conscientious objections was streamed live to Facebook and then published and posted there and kept there for two years. Same for the video of the woman admitting to uh, Vanderbilt's greed and profit motives. Streamed it. Put it on Facebook. Didn't even take down the stream afterwards. They didn't even say to themselves, oh, well, she, she went, uh, went a little off script there with some of this. I think we're going to take this down. No, left it up there. For years, these people did whatever they wanted, and they did it out in the open without fear of pushback or of criticism. But those days are over. They're over, and they're never coming back. So if you're in the gender butchery business, you ought to know that. You operated with impunity for a while, but now that's done. I, and I am not satisfied to simply report on what Vanderbilt is doing. Like I said, I'm not a journalist. I will act the part if I have to, because the real journalists won't. But no, I, I have an opinion here. I, I have a perspective. I have an agenda. The agenda is protecting kids and exposing horrors and atrocities where they're happening. And the other part of the agenda is to shut this down. Okay, we're going to put a stop to it. We're going to put a stop to it. We're not going to allow this to happen to children. We're going to make this illegal. That's what happens next. And we're just getting started. Now let's get to our five headlines. Well, I can't say enough good things about uh, my Helix mattress. You know, we got we got one Helix mattress, and we gave it to my daughter for her for her to sleep in. And uh, then I felt very jealous of that, so we said we needed to get a second Helix mattress. And now finally, my wife and I have one. Um, you can get a great night's sleep on a Helix mattress, and if you want to see it for yourself. Well, Helix has several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattresses are great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattresses are great for spinal alignment to prevent mornings, aches, and pains, and even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. Very important as well. They also have a sleep quiz that matches your body type and sleep preference to the perfect mattress because why would you buy a mattress made for someone else? So if you're looking for a mattress, take the quiz, order the mattress that you're matched to, and wait for the delivery. Uh, your mattress will come right to your door for free. You don't ever need to go to the mattress store again. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will, I guarantee it. For a limited time, Helix is offering up to $350 off all mattress orders 
and two free pillows for our listeners. This is their best offer yet, so hurry over to helixsleep.com slash Walsh. Uh, I, I should also tell you that um, this is one this is one more reason as we're as we're we're working on this with with this story with Vanderbilt, and uh, as I said, this is just you know we have we have good plans here. I can't lay them all out yet, but um, that that will come soon. And this is really just the beginning. You know, we we are exposing this in Tennessee because this is where we live. It seems like a logical place to start, but it doesn't end there. Uh, but I should tell you that, and this is this is the truth, that we, we cannot do any of this without our members supporting us. And you might think, well, you know, why do you need memberships to post a Twitter thread about this? Well, this is actually, this is hours of research and, and, and manpower that goes into something like this. Because even though they post all this stuff to, to the internet, it's a lot of stuff to sift through. And uh, most people just don't, you don't have the time or the energy to do it, which is one of the reasons why they've gotten away with it for so long. Um, and that's something we're able to dedicate the resources to because, I mean, directly because of our members. So if you are a member, thank you for that. Thank you for uh, enabling us to fight back in this way, in a way that's meaningful to like actually try to make a difference. I sit here every day on the show talking about all these awful things happening in the world, and it gets exhausting at times. I'm sure it gets exhausting for you in the audience, um, which is why it's such a relief to know that we can actually do something about it, to, 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 to take some of these things and say, we're not just going to talk about them. We're going to talk about them first to raise awareness, uh, but then we're going to do something about it. All of that is possible because of our members, so thank you to our members. And if you're not a member yet, encourage you to uh, think about becoming a subscriber and join this team, this uh, movement that we're building. So go to dailywire.com and get a membership today. I want to begin with this in our five, in our five headlines. Um, Turning Point USA has this report on their website. It says, Dylan Mulvaney is a man who began publicly identifying as a female just 191 days ago and demands others use she, them pronouns uh, when referring to him, he was invited to speak at the 2022 Forbes Power Women's Summit. Mulvaney posted about his experience going to the Forbes con- uh, conference where he spoke on a panel with two women about his transition journey, as well as the social media to mainstream pipeline. The problem with his appearance is a simple fact that he is indeed a man, not a woman who presents himself as an overdramatized parody of a female. Now, we have the tweet from Forbes where they uh, they posted, you know, an image of this Dylan Mulvaney character, and uh, the, the for, at Forbes Women says Dylan Mulvaney speaks about collaboration and authorship at the Forbes uh, Power Women Summit. So this is someone that they've invited to the Women's Summit as a speaker to address women, and I want to show you this. Just give you an, an example of the kind of thing that Dylan posts. Again, as you heard there just started, quote, identifying as a woman like half a year ago, okay, about six months ago. And what does that mean for him? I mean, what, is, what does being a woman mean? Well, here it is. Let's find out. Day 66, being a girl, and today I'm in nature. Trees, I love them. Water, lakes, I love them. Heels, they're my hiking heels. I love them. Okay, come on. Ah, ah, ah. 
bridges, love them. Coconut water, love it. Not an ad, just love it. Wind turbine, love it. <laughs> Meadows, love them. This is supposed to be what women do. Is this, a, is this a woman or is this like a woodland elf? Love ya. Okay. Oh. Did you see that? I gotta get out of here. Yeah, this is death. This is this is all Did kinds of preparation. All right. Oh my god. Okay, there you go. Never again. Get me out of here. So there's uh, that's Dylan Mulvaney's uh, uh, journey becoming a woman. And I only show you that because, again, this Forbes invited that person to be a speaker at a women's leadership summit. An, an utter cartoon, right? A, a total mockery of, of womanhood. And every time I see something like this, I, I, I think, like, have you ever met a woman? Do, do you, have you ever even met one? What woman acts like that? This is this is a, an impression. This is like some sort of. It, it would seem to be a parody, an actual. It would seem almost to be an actual intentional parody of of a woman. Because if you've ever met one in your life, you would know that nothing about that strikes me as remotely uh, feminine. This is what they turn women into as, well, they turn them into flamboyant gay men. What do you know? Big coincidence. And the irony is that on the right, we're always accused. Anytime we talk about, uh, if we're talking about abortion, for example, our pro-life convictions as men, the response from people on the left always is, well, you, what do you know about women? Have you ever even met a woman? A bunch of virgins? This is something they say to me all the time, even though I have six kids now. I've got my, I'm driving around in my 12-passenger van that I just bought yesterday, by the way, because uh, my wife finally did give in and realized we had to buy the vans. So we have this big, I'm driving around my big, massive van, soon to be filled with six kids. And then you've got the left, a bunch of childless leftists. Ah, oh, you virgin! Which maybe they they maybe they really mean it because they they, have, they don't know where babies come from. They actually don't understand the the biology of it, and so that makes that's an accusation that makes sense to them. So as much as they like, we always talk about on the left, whatever they say about their opposition is actually true of them. So it's nothing but projection all the time, and that's the case here because uh, this is this is the the version of womanhood that they prop up, which is not womanhood at all, but is again a satire, a parody, a cartoon. Okay, I've, I've never known, my, my wife uh, enjoys being out in nature, out in the woods. Okay, but I've never known her to put on high heels and, and prance through the forest, spinning around and talking about how much she loves everything in the forest. That's, uh, okay, if you got your idea of womanhood from watching... Uh, 1950s Disney cartoons. So if you got your idea of, of womanhood from Snow White and the Seven Doors, that's basically what this guy's got here. That's something, it's like a Snow White. She's, she's running through the forest and singing and the birds are coming and singing along with her. A literal cartoon. That's what they've turned woman, womanhood into. I would be, uh, if I was a woman which in fact I am not and never could be, 
despite popular misconceptions, I would be deeply offended by that sort of thing. That would be offensive to me, to be portrayed in that way. All right, Joe Biden announced a few days ago that the pandemic is over. He announced that on 60 Minutes, but his administration isn't quite ready to give up the pandemic yet. They, they still have they still have COVID coordinators on staff, for goodness sake. They, they have, uh, they're using their pandemic powers to ram through unconstitutional measures, and they probably have some more they want to do with that power. So they need this. They need the pandemic. They're not ready to give it up. Yet they've got uh, old Uncle Joe up there babbling about how the pandemic is over, uh, going off script. And so now the administration is in cleanup mode. And here is Karen Jean Pair on MSNBC trying her best to clean up after her boss. Let's see how she does. President also in the 60 Minutes interview said that the pandemic is over. There's been quite a bit of pushback to that uh, statement by the president. Where is he today on that? So uh, just to step back for a second, what we saw during that interview, uh, 60 minute interview, when he made those comments, he was walking through uh, the the Detroit uh, car show, the halls of the Detroit car show, and he was looking around. We have to remember the last time that they had held that event was three years ago. Even as we're talking about Unga, the president's going to speak shortly, as I just mentioned, we that hasn't been held in, in person for about three years as well. So we are in a different time. He's been very consistent about that. And the reason why is because we are now prepared. We are now ready. We know how to deal with uh, this pandemic. It is now m- more manageable. It's not as disruptive as it's been uh, in the prior in the prior years. And so and it is because of what this president has done on day one. If you think about where we were when he walked in, 3000 people were dying a day. That has come down 90 percent. You think about schools were closed, now schools are open. Think about businesses were closed, now businesses are open. And it's because of the work that this administration has done. Now, what he has been very consistent about is that we have to continue to have a front foot on this so we have the funding so that we are ahead of this, of any other, you know, as we look at future vaccines and future treatments, we need to make sure that we are ready for that as we're also leading, as we're talking on uh, the backdrop of UNGA, as we're leading globally as well. Hmm. Pretty good. I, you know, I, was, I'm, I'm, I have to admit, I don't give her a lot of credit. I'll give her some credit there. Uh, just in her ability to, to pretty good job filibustering uh, there. It's, keep on talking, keep on talking to stop them from asking any follow-ups. Not that they would have anyway, because it's MSNBC and they're, they're all on the same team. But um, she was talking around the issue, of course. It usually she doesn't do a very good job. I mean, that, that, that is, if you're a White House press secretary, especially for a Democrat president, that's all you're ever supposed to do is talk around the issues, not answer any questions. Usually she fumbles around quite a bit with that. Uh, she is getting a little better. She's learning, so that's nice. And uh, there she talks for about two minutes. But in summation, if we were to summarize everything she just said, she is claiming that her boss, the president of the United States, was wrong. She's, she's saying, no, he was wrong about that. The pandemic is still ongoing. She didn't come out outright and say it, but that is, in fact, what she said. Uh, Her spin is that, well, the pandemic still happened, but it's under control. And so when he said the pandemic is over, he actually meant that the pandemic is not over, but it's under control. And why did he say that? Because he was walking around at a car show. I don't see the connection. Well, of course he thought the pandemic was over. He was walking around at a car show. You know, and he saw a bunch of empty cars and he didn't see COVID in them. So he thought that's what was happening. He thought there was no COVID. 
So it started. Her explanation started a little bit rough, and then but she pivoted away from the car show, and then just started babbling about COVID response and all this stuff like that. That that was that's where we got to the what what, what her her job is. All right. Um, so I want to show you this segment from, and this is also from, this is from NBC about the supposed right wing effort to ban books. Um, we hear a lot about this now. In fact, sorry, this is from CNN. How do you tell the difference? Anyway, uh, we're constantly hearing about how on the right, we're out there just burning books, banning books. Now, as a right-wing extremist myself, and as a stochastic terrorist, uh, I've never been invited. I'm a little bit offended that all these book burnings are happening on the right. I've never even been invited to one, but apparently this is what we're doing. I want you to watch how this segment plays out, though. Watch this. In our buried lead, that's what we call stories we do not think are getting enough attention. At least 50 groups are fighting to ban books in U.S. schools. That's according to Penn, a nonprofit literary advocacy organization. A new report from Penn says these groups are fighting to ban material related to race and LGBTQ rights and critical race theory and more. Joining us now to discuss, Jonathan Friedman. He's the director of free expression and education programs at Penn America. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Your report breaks down the subject matters for the books that are Currently, there, there are pushes for them to be banned. A majority of them have LGBTQ plus themes or have a protagonist of, of color. Um, explain more, if you would. And, and obviously, the devil's advocate argument might be to a parent out there, hey, I don't want my first grade reading anything having to do with sexuality, much less LGBTQ or heterosexual anything. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk about this. You know, in district after district, we've been tracking book bans, efforts to remove and restrict and diminish access to literature for young people. And the trends are very clear that LGBTQ books, books that touch on race and racism, or books that have any kind of sexual content, you know, whether it's a book, a young adult uh, a work of fiction that has a couple kissing, or a, a book teaching a young person about puberty, is on the chopping block, and it's the same books being targeted everywhere. Now, parents do have a right to get involved, have a voice, bring their concerns to teachers, to librarians, to school districts, but increasingly we are not seeing any kind of regular processes being instituted in response to those demands. Someone demands a book is removed, and they don't want it maybe for their own child, but immediately that book is taken away for everybody else. You can't run schools that way. Yeah, so you notice, uh, you notice what... what you notice what you don't notice there. You notice what's missing. And first of all, he doesn't, answer, he doesn't actually answer the question from Jake Tapper. What about parents who say that there shouldn't be sexual content of any kind, especially in an elementary school classroom or library? Doesn't answer that question. Other thing they don't do is give any examples of the books that are being banned. Because it is true that we on the right, otherwise known as just like rational, morally decent people, which when they say the right, that's actually what they mean these days, which fine, I'll accept it. But we, we have called for banning certain books from the classroom. Um, but those are books that are explicitly sexual and graphic. And that's why they don't actually, they don't give an example. They don't say, well, this specific, here's one specific book that conservatives have wanted to take out of the classroom. Here it is. Now, much less do they show you any of the images from these books. They're not going to do that. Because if they did, every single, even the, the average CNN viewer would see it and say, "What? Well, that's in the classroom? Are you kidding me? That's what you guys are complaining about? One of the books 
and, and there, there are only a, a sort of a, really a few books that are in, in contention here. And they're only in contention because the left came along and said, we want to put these books into the classroom. And then we, who are rational, sane, morally decent people, said, no, you're not putting that in the classroom. The left comes along and says, hey, we got a great idea. We're going to put some pornography in the classroom. And then we say, uh, no, I'm <laughs> putting porn in the classroom. Oh, you book burners. You're just like Nazis. You're the one trying to inject this stuff into the classroom. The kids were doing fine without it. But they don't want to give you an example because... One of, one of the uh, most infamous examples is a book, Gender Queer, which is a, a pornographic, it's kind of a graphic novel in graphic in multiple senses of the word. And we've talked before about some of the stuff that's in this book. There's, there's pornographic stuff depicting, for example, fellatio and those sorts of things in the book, pictures of it. But they're not going to show you that. Because like I said, if they showed you that, the average CNN viewer, even the average CNN viewer, if they showed, okay, here's the book Gender Queer, here's, here's one of the books they want to uh, ban, and, and here's the page that has really been come under contention the most, and, and there you see, some, you, you see someone with a, with a strap-on dildo and someone else is performing fellatio on them. That's in the book. People watching CNN are going to say, what in the world? You're telling me that is in the classroom? Yep. Of course, Tapper also says that uh, the other books that are being banned are ones where there's a protagonist of color. Because, right, because you, you've heard conservatives call for that. And think of all the conservatives who said, no, we don't want any books with protagonists of color. Get that book out of the classroom. We've seen all these school board meetings where uh, parents get up there and, they, and they, they present the books that they found in their kids' uh, school's library. And they say, we don't want this book. How many of those videos have we seen where the parent stands up? and has a, a, a book and says, this book doesn't belong in the classroom. It has a protagonist of color in it. How many videos like that have you seen? Well, none at all, because those are not the books anyone has a problem with. We're very specific about this. We just don't want graphic, pornographic depictions in books given to kids in elementary schools or at any other grade level. That's all. That's our only point. Um, let's see, NBC has this report. U.S. doctors should regularly screen all adults under 65 for anxiety, an influential health guidelines group proposed on Tuesday. It's the first time the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force has recommended anxiety screening in primary care for adults without symptoms. The proposal is open for public comment until October 17th, but the group usually affirms its draft guidance. The recommendations are based on a review that began before the COVID-19 pandemic, Evaluating studies showing potential benefits and risks from screening. Given reports of a surge in mental health problems linked with pandemic isolation and stress, the guidance is very timely, says Lori uh, Burt, a uh, task force member and co-author. Actually, your name is, pronounced, your name is spelled P-B-E-R-T. P-Bert? Is that what it is? P-Bert is a psychologist researcher at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. So this is what they're recommending now, uh, and, this, and they're recommending it, and the recommendations always, always end up um, becoming policy. So this is going to be the policy now. We're going to do anxiety screenings for adults without symptoms. And it's the kind of thing that I think if you're not really clued in and paying attention, you might hear that, and you might say, well, it sounds like a good idea. Sure, anxiety is a bad thing, and why not have a doctor screen for it? This, this is actually a terrible idea. This is an awful idea. 
Because I'll tell you what this functions as, and I'll tell you what the purpose of it is. It is to funnel more and more people into the pharmaceutical pipeline. Get more and more people on drugs. They want to find, like, we don't have enough people on psychotropic drugs already. We don't have enough people on anti-anxiety, antidepressants already. Even though with antidepressants, the whole, the, 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 the medical basis for antidepressants has been destroyed now. It's been revealed to be a fraud. But still, you know, millions of people on these drugs. Not enough, though, for the system. They want even more people. And so now they're going to they're gonna start screening you for anxiety symptoms. So if they find hints of anxiety, they can say, well, let's get him on a drug, too. Good news, you get to be on a drug. Screening for anxiety symptoms? Everyone has anxiety. It is the human condition. It is one of the most, uh, it is a hallmark of the human condition, in fact, is anxiety. It's, It's one of the things that separates us from the animals. It's one of the defining traits of the human psyche is anxiety. Everyone has it, every single person. You right now, every single person watching, you all have anxiety, all of you. Like, there's never been a person who has walked through a day and not experienced anxiety. It has never happened ever in the history of humanity. And so now if we're screening everyone for it on a regular basis, that means that, what do you know, we're going we're gonna to find millions of more cases of anxiety, and that's millions of, uh, of more customers for the pharmaceutical industry. And not just funneling them into the clutches of the pharmaceutical industry, but also into the clutches of therapists and counselors, um, which is a problem as well. Because although, in theory, therapy and counseling can be a good thing, I mean, the whole idea between, behind therapy is you go and you talk to someone, you talk about your problems. In theory, that's a very good thing. And there are very good therapists and counselors out there. But a lot of them are rabid ideologues and gender ideology cultists with their own agenda. And their agenda has nothing to do with act, with anything therapeutic. They're not looking to help you with your problems. So, for example, here's a viral TikTok posted by Libs of TikTok. Well, reposted. She didn't post it initially. Um, this is from a therapist. And this is a TikTok that he posted. And... This is what therapy is today in so many cases. So we'll play it and we'll read the captions up here, but go ahead and play it. So it says, point of view, your homophobic, transphobic parents drop you off to therapy thinking I'm a hetero. And he starts dancing. Me, queer as F, here to validate your feelings, support you, talk about oppression, and challenge your parents. Then this is, again, something he posts willingly to TikTok for everyone to see. So he says, here's what he's actually here to do. Put the back up on the screen for a second. The end of that. What he's actually here to do, so the parents drop the kids off thinking that, well, am I going to get my kids therapy? They need some help. They have emotional problems. Makes sense as a parent. You'd like to think that you, that you could trust a therapist. But he says, no, that's not, his agenda is not that. His agenda, is because he's queer as F, is to validate your feelings, support you, Talk about oppression and challenge your parents. That is not therapy. That is not counseling. Uh, validating your feelings is, is the, not just not therapy. That's the opposite of what a therapist is supposed to do. If, you, if the patient is going to sit down there and um, the client is going to sit down there and you're going to validate whatever they say, why are they there? 
What are you there for? What's the function exactly? Oh, they're not supposed to be there to validate whatever unreasonable, delusional thing you might think, to validate your and affirm your lack of perspective, your confusions. They're supposed to be there for clarity and perspective. And if a child isn't getting along with his parents, the therapist is supposed to help heal that relationship, help the child see more clearly, help the child understand his feelings and his, his thoughts, and help to heal the divide between parent and child. But now for so many of these people, as they will willingly announce for everyone to see, uh, they see their job as the opposite of that. Their job is to sever the parent-child relationship, destroy it, and to take all of the mental confusion that's causing the problem and um, encourage it. And there's going to be more victims as we, as we start screening people for anxiety and depression and all these other things. Uh, that, that means sending them more into therapists. And then, and then what happens? So someone gets screened. Maybe your kid gets a little anxiety screening. And the doctor says, yep, got some anxiety. Let's get him on drugs. Send him to a therapist. Sits down with a the therapist. And then the therapist says, well, you know, I've figured out what your anxiety is all about. It turns out that, uh, well, you think you're a boy, but you're actually a girl. That's what the anxiety is. And your parents will tell you otherwise. Don't listen to them. They're a bunch of scumbags, and, and they're oppressive and, and bigoted. Don't listen to them. This is the process. This is how you trans an entire generation, which is what they're doing right now. All right, let's get to the comment section. Who makes a Twitter mob fly off the handle with rage? Who's to blame? It's a sweet baby gang. Matthew says, Bexar County is pronounced Bear County for future reference. Please don't say Bexar County again. It is a macro aggression, not micro. You're also canceled for this offense. No, that's not how it's pronounced. And, I, and there are many other comments too, because I talked about Bexar County and the Democrat sheriff down there that wants to arrest Ron DeSantis. All these comments, it's, not, it's pronounced Bear County. No, you're wrong. Okay, You live in, in Bexar County and, and you are actually wrong about how your own town is pronounced. I am telling you as an outsider how to actually pronounce it. B-E-X-A-R is not pronounced bear. There is no version of the English language that would arrive, that, 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 that can make bear out of B-E-X-A-R. It's Bexar. Hate to tell you, you've been pronouncing it wrong this whole time. That's how you put, like, letters have there are certain sounds that, that letters make, and this is, how we, this is how you learn English in the first place. This is how we teach kids. And I know English can get a little funky sometimes, and you've got silent letters and all these different things. But there have to be limits to it. Okay, you can't... We, we, we have to draw the line somewhere. It is Bexar County. Rachel says, my eighth grader uh, wrote hee-haw as his preferred pronouns in his health class. I told him that it was my proudest parenting moment to date. And, and rightfully so, rightfully so. That is exactly how kids should respond. Make a joke out of it. Make a mockery of it. Fantastic. Jay Stoss says, I thought Matt was going to cancel the rapping grandma. He was even reclining back in his chair at the end of the video, which he always does, but right before he tears into somebody. It just goes to show that Though we may know Matt Walsh, we don't really know him. He is beyond our understanding, beyond us mortal humans. Matt Walsh simply is. 
Well, why would you think that I would want to cancel? Well, you're banned from the show for that. Why would I cancel? I don't have a policy of canceling every single person who performs a kind of awkward and embarrassing rap. That's not a policy on this show. If you've got the wholesome quotient, I might not be a very wholesome guy myself. I might not always appreciate wholesome things. But you know what? Wholesomeness can go a long way, I think. You can get, you can get away with a lot if you're wholesome. And the grandma, she was wholesome. And so it's allowed. Um, Ashley says, my favorite part of the show is when Matt tells sweet stories about his kids. Well, they aren't just sweet. I mean, I, I try to tell stories that are funny. I'm not up here like, let me tell you about another cute thing my kid did. See, there seems to be a bit of a false narrative building here, which is why I want to address this. Because last night, one of our super fans on Twitter, uh, after watching backstage, she tweeted and she said that she thought I was, a, I was such a sweetheart during backstage. I said, what? What kind of irresponsible misinformation is this? This is dangerous misinformation and a threat to our democracy. I will tell you one sweet story about my kid. Fine. Uh, I last, and there's no, nothing funny at the end. It happens at the end of this, but this is just, I'll, I'll give you one. So uh, last night I get, I get home from backstage and my nine-year-old daughter comes out of her room and says, Daddy, I've been waiting up for you. I need to show you something. So she was waiting up to show me. So she waited. It's like two hours she was waiting up. And then I go into her room. She hands me her little notepad where she had written a song. And, uh, and she waited up for like two hours to show me the song that she wrote. And it was, it, was, uh, it was a very sweet song, and it was very nice. It was a little derivative of other songs I've heard. You know, there might be some plagiarism a, a, a little bit, but it was still, it was very, it was very cute, very nice. Um, Peter Van Eden says, hi, Matt. What happened to that trans PhD student that was calling for sending drugs to other transgenders by mail? That story became very quiet. Uh, I, yeah, Eli Ehrlich, I have not forgotten about that. I can tell you that. Um, that's just like Vanderbilt. This is not something that I'm going to forget about because that's, that's part of the story. So we have, we have, um, the ways that uh, kids are legally right now drugged and mutilated, and we got to do something about that. But then even when you stop it from happening legally, I mean, that's going to put, that's going to save a lot of kids in and just, just on its own, but they're also the underground black market operations uh, Eli Ehrlich is one example of that, not the only one. So that's something we're working on too. I'll just tell you that. We haven't forgotten about it. Um, uh, I'll also say that not everything can be achieved by talking about it publicly. Heberth Alvarez says, careful, Matt. Ben is trying to commit facial hair appropriation. You can't let him appropriate flannel. No, I'm, uh, yeah, I did see Ben backstage last night, had a little bit of facial hair going on. I, uh, there's no appropriation here. I always welcome. I'm very tolerant and welcoming and inclusive in the bearded facial hair community, and I welcome anybody in. I, 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 I welcome anybody in as sort of like a long-lost brother, you know, so I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, and finally, Adam says, Matt, I appreciated your discussion about porn during backstage last night, but I thought you personally came off as holier than thou and judgmental to those who struggle with watching porn. With respect, if you thought that from watching the discussion, then I, then I can only think that you didn't, you weren't watching it very carefully. Um, just because we're talking about something and saying that it's bad and we shouldn't do it, that doesn't, it's, that's, that's not holier than thou. Holier than thou is if I were to stand up and say, I am better than all of you, and I follow my example. 
That's not how I approach any conversation. We're just talking about the issue. And there are some realities with pornography, and none of the realities are good. It is a dirty, shameful, awful thing. Which is why men who suffer from porn addiction want to get over it. I mean, they know this. They don't need me to tell them that. And they wouldn't disagree. I think, and, and you should, that was uh, the members block of the uh, backstage last night, which is another reason to become a member, so you can watch great content like that. But I thought it was a really interesting conversation. And, and I, I, I enjoy backstage the most when we get into kind of debates and arguments. And the reason why the debates are interesting is because we agree fundamentally on the basic um, principles. And when you agree on the basic principles, you can have much more interesting arguments. This is why debates in our culture generally are so in, uninteresting and tedious and boring, and they don't, they don't amount to anything or go anywhere, because th- there's, there's a fundamental disagreement about the basic principles, and so you, you can't get anywhere in the conversation. You can't get past square one, because you are, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're living in two different universes, but when you can agree on the basic principles, then it allows you to get a little bit deeper into the weeds and talk about more interesting things, and so that was what was happening in, the, uh, in that porn conversation. I'm not going to rehash the entire thing. I will just reiterate some, a point that I was trying to make in the, that, that conversation, which is that, well, there's two things. There's this idea that, well, all men look at porn and there's nothing that can be done about it. Everyone looks at it and you can't, you know, you can't really stop men from doing it. Men can't stop themselves. Uh, that wasn't said exactly in the conversation, but you know, there's, there's this idea in general that you hear sometimes. And uh, I reject that. You know, I, I reject that it's uh, that it's this automatic, uncontrollable thing. I reject it. It's not true. It is, it is, in fact, possible to not look at porn. Now, if you have an addiction, and especially if you've been immersed in this addiction from childhood, and your very your your fundamental notions of human sexuality have been warped and perverted by this filth that you've been swimming in from a young age, then getting past that, that is very difficult. But it is possible to not look at pornography. Like, as a man, it doesn't have to be part of your life. It's not a judgmental holier-than-thou statement. I think that's actually, that's a, that's a message of hope. Like, you don't have to, this is, this is not, uh, this doesn't automatically come with the territory. It is possible to have a life totally free of this filth. You can, that is possible. Very possible. But then the other part of it is that uh, I think we have to validate, to use the leftist, to use a leftist term there, validate the feelings of women and of wives who feel totally devastated and destroyed by their husbands looking at pornography. I mean, the way they see it is when they're, you know, their husband's upstairs looking at other people have sex while she's down taking care of the kids. I mean, she sees this as a, total betrayal. And I agree with her. She should see it that way. She's not crazy for seeing it that way. That's how men should see it. It gives you all the more motivation to try to free yourself from this. Because when you look at porn, especially if you're a married man, that is not a victimless crime. Um, it's, it's, it's not neutral. You, you're actually hurting people. I mean, you're hurting yourself and you're hurting your family and your wife and your kids. You're hurting everybody that's closest to you, the people you love the most. So that's the point I wanted to make. I'm not sure where you see the holier than thou in that.
There are two ways to absolutely stop the left in its tracks. The first is to point out their lunacy. The second is to take as much money away from them as possible. And if you're a regular, a regular listener to this show, you're doing the former. If you made the decision to stop supporting Harry's or Gillette's and go to Jeremy's Razors, then you're doing both now. Uh, but if you haven't heard yet, we've got a brand new incentive for you. It's the Jeremy's Razors Contest for the Car. Why do we call it that? Because it's a contest for a car. Here's how it works. For every person you refer, whether they buy a Jeremy's Razors kit or a Daily Wire annual membership, you both get points in the race to win the God Kings McLaren. If uh, someone from the Sweet Baby Gang wins this thing, it'll warm my heart. So get out there and start hustling. To sign up and start competing, go to jeremysrazors.com play. The race for the car ends on November 1st. So get into the competition today. See terms and conditions for complete details at jeremysrazors.com slash referral terms. The program is open only to the legal uh, to legal U.S. residents residing in the U.S. slash D.C., excluding residents of Colorado, Connecticut, Maryland, Puerto Rico, and U.S. territories and possessions 18 and older. Remember, friends don't let friends shave with woke razors. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. So you have at this point certainly heard the story about the teacher in Canada who uh, enjoys wearing giant prosthetic breasts to class, acting out his perverse sexual fantasies in front of his students. In fact, he forces them to participate in effect, in his fetish against their will, just by being there. The story has resonated because I, I think it's so disturbing and weird and shocking. That's one reason why it's caught people's attention. Um, nobody could have predicted it exactly, but I think this pervert in Canada with his giant fake breast may serve as a, as a turning point for the culture because people can finally see where gender ideology leads. Even those who, to this point, generally went along with it, using preferred pronouns and so on, all in the name of being polite. They wanted to be polite. Now they're beginning to notice the slope that they're rapidly slipping down. Because if you start affirming everybody, no matter how degraded their self-perception might be, you quickly end up with things like this. You end up with fetishists wearing sex aids to school. And that's far from the worst of it. But not everybody is ready to condemn the man with the fake breast. Peter Bokassian, who, is, um, who bills himself as a philosopher, tweeted a picture of the infamous fetishist along with the caption, quote, most people have strong moral impulses about whether this individual should be allowed to teach their children in a public school. But very few can construct a good argument why or why not. It's more difficult than you think. Try it. Well, actually, Peter, it's not difficult at all. I mean, you might as well claim that it's difficult to come up with an argument against setting puppies on fire or, or torching, torching nursing homes. It is very easy to explain why these things are bad. In the case of the teacher, I can do it in one sentence. You shouldn't act out your sexual fetishes in front of children. There, done. I could add, you know, I could add to that that you shouldn't act out your sexual fetishes at work at all, even if you don't work with children. You shouldn't act them out in public. So there, there are three good arguments against this behavior. That's only a very partial list. But what is Peter's actual point? I mean, why is he pretending that the freak with the, the, the big fake boobs presents some sort of complex moral dilemma? Why is he acting like this is something that Greek philosophers might have, might have written about and argued about? Perhaps Aristotle wrote a treatise on fetish gear in the classroom. I'll have to check. I'm not sure. Well, I think that what we really see here is, first, the insistence that we cannot condemn anything 
unless we're able to come up with a universal, generalized, overarching principle for everything, that that um, that and that and that if there are any potential exceptions at all to the principle, then the condemnation is automatically invalid. So this is the, this is the idea. You can't condemn anything. You have to have, unless you have an overarching general principle that applies to it. And if there are any exceptions to that principle, then the principle no longer holds. This is the attitude on the left, which is why you can never get them to talk about any specific thing. Immediately, they'll go to the exceptions, which are supposed to negate whatever you said about the specific thing that was not an exception. So how does this relate to the dude with the big fake boobs? Well, I imagine that if you condemn the prosthetic breasts, somebody like Peter would respond, well, why is it wrong to wear prosthetics? What about a teacher with a prosthetic leg? Huh? What about that? Gotcha. And even if you hinge your argument, as I did, on the idea that adults shouldn't be acting out their fetishes in front of children, somebody like Peter might retort with something like, are all fetishes bad? What if someone has a fetish for wearing pants? Does that mean they, they shouldn't wear pants in the classroom? Ha, gotcha again. This is how they play the game. If you, know, if you think I'm exaggerating, consider that the left has actually argued and has been arguing uh, today after, this, after the Vanderbilt expose. They argue that it's invalid to criticize double mastectomies for gender-confused girls because sometimes girls need double mastectomies as breast cancer treatment. So they take two completely different situations, which are extremely easy to distinguish between, and claim that because there is one through line connecting them, you automatically cannot condemn the one without condemning the other. Like, they, they act as though the only way to condemn double mastectomies for teenage girls is to argue that double mastectomies in and of themselves are wrong all the time. It's an utterly absurd tactic, but this is what most debates on the internet boil down to. I think there's something else going on here, too. Peter acknowledges that most people have a strong moral impulse against this kind of activity. Yet he declares that this moral impulse isn't sufficient. Like we have to come up with a rational argument against it. In this case, you know, we, we, can, we, we can come up with, with rational arguments easily in this case. It's not, it's, it's not actually hard to do. But even if we couldn't, putting that aside, why isn't our moral impulse good enough? I mean, why isn't it good enough? He says, people have a moral impulse that this is wrong. Okay, well, I mean, say no more. I mean, we, you acknowledge this is our moral impulse tells us that it's wrong to behave this way. Why do you need more than that? This is something we all inherently recognize as wrong. Almost everyone in the world knows it's wrong to wear fetish gear in front of kids. The people who actually do it also know that it's wrong, which is part of the sick thrill they derive from it. They're masochists titillated by humiliation and also excited by breaking taboos. As for the people who don't personally engage in this behavior yet would defend it on principle, most of them, like the school administrators who defended him, they know that it's perverse and gross, but they feel compelled to accept it in the name of gender identity and tolerance. Any small fraction of people remaining who are not themselves fetishes but genuinely don't believe that this activity is wrong well, it's easy to explain them through a combination of mental illness and deep moral confusion ingrained in them practically from birth by the nihilistic, degraded culture they live in. So we have a world where almost everyone intuitively, inherently sees that this sort of activity is wrong. 
along, maybe along with a small minority who don't see it because they're mentally disturbed and deluded. Well, Peter says that's, that's, that's not good enough. We have to be able to explain these things, things that everyone knows, and if we can't explain them, then the thing can be ignored or discarded. This is the trick the left has been pulling for decades. Our inherent moral intuition as human beings must be explained to their satisfaction or else they're entitled to just ignore it completely. But that's not true. That's not how it works. And it also unfairly flips the burden of proof around. See, it's not up to you or to me to explain why grown men should not play out their sexual fantasies in front of kids. I can explain it, but that's not my job. If Peter or anybody else thinks that this activity is acceptable, it's up to them to present their arguments defending it. So you see the tactic here. If we can't rationally defend our moral intuition, then they can do whatever they want. But they don't have to rationally defend anything. It's all us. They don't have to defend or explain anything. We have to defend and explain everything. We have to tell them why they shouldn't do it. They don't have to tell us why they should. Except again, that's not how it works. Like if you're coming along and insisting that the moral impulse shared by nearly everyone in the world is wrong, you have to make your case. You have to present your evidence and convince us that actually it's good for men to wear enormous fake boobs in the classroom. The burden of proof is on you. It's on you. When, when, when the man shows up with the giant fake boobs, he, he, no, no, he, he can't say, well, give me one good reason why I shouldn't wear these. No, no. You, you freaking weirdo. You give me one good reason why you should. You're the one showing up here like that. Explain to me. Explain yourself. Explain to me why you are acting that way. I don't have to explain myself. I'm not the one doing something bizarre and ridiculous and gross. That's you. You explain yourself. But that's a burden you can't meet, which is why they always try to flip the conversation around and put the onus on us, as if our conviction that children should not be participants in the sexual fetishes of adults is some sort of radical idea in need of explanation. It isn't. We need to explain nothing. We need only say to Peter Boghossian and his friend with the breasts, you're canceled. And that'll do it for us today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. As we move into our members block. Okay, Godspeed.